Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Michael Scott Moore, spent 977 days as a hostage of Somali pirates. He's a journalist, and in 2012, he set out for the Somali coast on a reporting trip when he was kidnapped. What followed was a -a two-and-a-half-year ordeal that he masterfully recounts in his new book, The Desert and the Sea. This book is beautifully written. It's a page-turner, and he really puts you in his shoes during this ordeal. I'll post a link to it on the website. In our conversation, we discuss his capture and time in captivity, as well as broader issues surrounding piracy off the coast of Somalia, including how it began, why it flourished, and why now it's become less of an issue. One thing that does come through from our conversation is that the gang that kidnapped Michael was most certainly part of an organized criminal network whose business was kidnapping hostages for ransom. And they were not necessarily what you would think of typically as pirates. And we do discuss how some of the mechanisms of organized crime helped piracy flourish off the coast of Somalia for so long, and also some of the policy responses that governments around the world can enact to reduce the threat from piracy. This conversation kind of weaves between the the personal and the wonky. I think you'll really enjoy it, and I do highly recommend his book, The Desert and the Sea. So here is my conversation with journalist and author Michael Scott Moore. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, I, I went there to write a very different book about Somali pirates, and I, I went to a part of central Somalia that um, was not unknown to journalists. So I, I went with a fixer from Berlin, a Somali elder, uh, who had taken another German journalist there before. Uh, and I went with another documentary maker um, named Ashwin Rahman, who worked for German television, um, Indian-born, but a very good German videographer. And uh, we were working on separate projects in Somalia, but decided to travel together. And we spent about 10 days getting pretty good material, actually, um, the, the region called Galmudug, um, which is there in central Somalia. And it, it encompasses Galkayo, which is the town um, where I was captured eventually, as well as Hobio, which is a pirate town most people may have heard of. Uh, and and you were there to report on, on Somali pirates, but it was based on, on this trial, right, in, that was ongoing in, in Berlin that you had followed? That's right. I was going to... 
uh, work on a broader book about piracy, but I was going to focus on the story of this trial, which was actually taking place in Hamburg, and um, I had followed it for almost a year. It was this sort of endless trial of 10 Somali pirates who had tried to capture a German cargo ship uh, in about 2010, and they got rounded up by the Dutch Navy and hauled before court, and it was the first pirate trial on German soil in about four centuries. What drew you to like the 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 idea of of writing about pirates? Like, what what made that interesting to you? Well, that sort of indicates it. Uh, the the fact that piracy had revived again on on Earth was was interesting. Um, the last very serious period of of piracy um, was probably the Barbary era, which ended in the early nineteenth century. Um, so we had gone through at least 200 years of relative peace on the, on the world's oceans. And the fact that there was a region, um, where it was actively dangerous to, to sail your ship, um, off Somalia was, it was very interesting to me. Um, of course, piracy has never disappeared and, um, it's been a problem in the Molucca Strait and uh, off Indonesia for a long time. Um, but in the, the Somali pirate era that I refer to now is about from 2005 to 2012 was sort of a blister on world history. And it, it was interesting to, for me to, to learn more about it. Um, are there like similarities between the Barbary era and sort of Somalia circa 2008 that sort of... Uh, are, are sort of indicative of why piracy might flourish? Uh, yes, absolutely. The, the main similarity is that they were both, um, they were both territories, both Somalia and um, the North African shore, what we talk about as the Barbary Coast, were close to commercial, um, um, close to commercial corridors, which means that European trade as well as American trade, the young American trade in the, the late 1700s and early 1800s had to pass through the Strait of Gibraltar. And those North, North African principalities up there that belonged to the Ottoman Empire were used to taking um, a tribute from, from the countries that wanted safe passage. Um, and if not, if they hadn't paid up, then they got sacked by pirates. Um, Somali piracy was not even close to, to that organized, but um, it was st it still preyed on commercial vessels that had to go through um, the Red Sea and, um, um, and the, the Gulf of Aden. I mean, you know, Somalia had been a failed state since the you know, early 1990s. Like, why was it that you know, around 2008 that piracy began to, to flourish? Well, it had, something like it had been going on for ages. For, it had been going on for at least another uh, 10 years before that. Um, Somalia started to fall apart in 1991 when Siad Bari was toppled. And in the 90s, it became kind of a free-for-all for illegal fishing. And a lot of foreign vessels would come in pretty close to the Somali shore and actually steal fish uh, because Somalia had no navy to protect its coastline. So... Um, in the 90s already, there were regional warlords or, or leaders who, who would send out bands of armed men on little skiffs and say to some of the foreign fishing ships, you know, you need a license to, to fish here. But there was no federal government in Somalia to issue a license. So it was kind of a freelance operation where these bands of armed men would say, 
okay, well, the license costs about 50,000 bucks, and they would hold the ship for maybe 24 hours. And once the owners paid up, paid their dues, then it was done. And um, it was not exactly official, but it was how business got done. And uh, the world only heard about it when that operation expanded and became a form of organized crime. Um, and that the first time that happened was in 2005. Um, a major, I think it was a, a tanker, got captured in 2005. And then it really picked up speed in about 2007. Um, so this this is the context that, that brings you to Somalia in, in 2012. Um, can you sort of talk about like the your specifics or the day you were captured what what happened How, like what were you doing like what was your kind of journalistic intent that day say sure well ashwin and i had actually spent about 10 days already gathering pretty good material and uh ashwin decided to fly to mogadishu so that day we took him to the airport and we saw him off he he flew flew away safely but it was on the way back from the airport that a truck was actually waiting for us, um, kind of a battle wagon, a truck with a cannon bolted in the back. And a technical, probably. A right? technical, yeah, 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 exactly. That's what they're called in that yeah. part of the world. And they're fairly common because of the Somali Civil War. Um, it was technicals that helped ta- topple Siad Bari. And there it was waiting by the side of the road. It wasn't even clear it was for us at first, but when they noticed our car – um, they drove up towards us with the cannon aimed through our windshield and overpowered my guards. And there were about a dozen men in the flatbed who came over and pulled me out of the car. And violently. I mean, you violently. broke, your, oh, yeah. you, you broke because, your, your wrist, your glasses yeah. were smashed. Yep, because they opened the door and <laughs> once I figured out what was going on, I mean, it was pretty clear actually, uh, I tried to help hold the door closed where they tried to open it. And they rammed my wrists with the muzzles of their Kalashnikovs and broke my wrist, um, pulled me out and bloodied my scalp. I mean, they beat me on the head. And um, I was wearing glasses, which got swept off my face and sort of broken in the dust. And they they took away my backpack, which was um, full of things, too. And those first few days, like what's what's going through your your mind? Like how are you coping? How are you sort of like interpreting um, what's happening to you? I think I was in shock. I mean, I was really just stunned. Uh, of course, I knew kidnapping was was a risk. I I was really just horrified that it ha- that it had actually happened. So I was stunned by this new situation. You know, I, all of a sudden I was bloodied and you know, wearing nothing but torn clothes and having to camp in the bush with these these men who meant me harm. So <clears throat> that shock didn't didn't wear off for a few days, I don't think. Um, <laughs> if, but, if at all. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, and initially they, they just started asking for like ridiculous sums of, of money, right? Yeah, within a week they handed me a phone and uh, told me to call my family, and the first demand was $20 million. And, and your mom at this point is like a retiree living in California, right? That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I guess it's interesting that, that you, you spoke to her several times over, over the length of, of your ordeal, and, and all the while she was sort of being advised by, by the FBI. But did you have any sense, I suppose, of like what her interactions were with the FBI? Um you know, obviously, you you probably know now, but were, did you have any sense of what was happening? While no, you not were, while I, yeah. 
while I was there, I certainly didn't. I, I had no idea. Um, she, I could tell sometimes that she'd been coached because she asked me for, you know, like the name of my cat when I was younger or something like that before we could start the conversation, um, which meant that somebody had told her to make sure that it was me on the phone. Um, so I knew that sort of thing went on in the background um, in other hostage cases. And so I was aware it was happening to my mother. Uh, I'd, frankly, I didn't know it was the FBI. I, I didn't know necessarily who was coaching her. Um, you know, it didn't have to be the FBI. Sometimes various branches of the U.S. government actually compete for um, to lead a case like that. So. so so pretty soon, though, you're, you're taken to a, a captured tuna vessel. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, how did your circumstances change when you went from sort of land to, to sea? Right. Well, that was kind of a violent transition, too. Uh, I was being held on land, mostly in Hobio, when they captured that vessel. The same gang hijacked uh, the Naham 3 out near the Seychelles and brought it into anchor by Hobio when I was lying around with another hostage in a sort of Italian ruin, uh, Italian colonial ruin in Hobio. So we saw the ship when it got there, but um, it took a few weeks for them to decide to put it on. Uh, put us on board. And they probably did it to save money and you know, you know, consolidate us under under one guard team, all the hostages. But um, I thought that my life was about to end. I mean, I, they they placed us on board the ship, and they took my radio, they took my notes. I injured my back on the skiff getting out to the ship, and I just thought this is going to be miserable, and they're going to take us away up the coast or something like that. And I really wanted to be off the ship at first. I really wanted to, or, or just commit suicide or something. It was the first time I felt like killing myself, I think. But as it turned out, the ship was a very good place to be compared to land because it had an active kitchen and the food wasn't bad. <laughs> um, and there were 28 other hostages on board. So the crew of the Naham 3 um, got to be, we all got to be pretty good friends. So, I mean, it, it's interesting because like throughout the book, it's, you know, there's just like like the mundane events of, of life take on sort of profound significance and, and, you know, having like good food, or as you said, this was like a tuna vessel and you, you know, occasionally ate some like fresh uh, sashimi, you know, yeah. was, were, were sort of moments of, um, like like pleasure, I, I suppose that kind of shook you from your the overwhelming despair that seems to be present throughout the pages of of the book. Well, definitely, we were anchored as it happens over a reef, and Roly, who was my sort of my partner, he was the first hostage I was thrown together with on land, um, and sort of my partner on board. And uh, from so the Seychelles, right? He was, uh, he yeah. was a fisherman from the Seychelles, so. We we were constantly catching fresh fish from over the side from the from this coral reef, and uh, Roly is the one who said we're, we're anchored over a reef, and he identified all these fish because he caught them himself in another life, you know. Um, so he would teach me the names in in Seychellois Creole, and so it was an education for me. It was it was actually quite interesting, um, but these were moments during very long and tedious days. You know, life on board the ship was extremely boring too. So I, I guess one really interesting thing, and, and it, it's treated, I think, very um, delicately and, and, and humanely, is the experience of, of your captors. Um, 
what what do you know now of of the gang that that caught you um and 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 kidnapped you i mean on the one hand you know the, it's organized crime on the other hand like a lot of them kind of come across as bumbling idiots mm-hmm. that's um, true and and what's interesting uh, at least to me is you know you know these are called in shorthand pirates but you know their goal is not like the tuna or the oil on the fishing vessel that they've captured it's the the people on board yeah. to, to ransom them like you're yeah. you're the prize that's right and that makes them different from other pirates so for example there are pirates off the west african coastline right now yeah, especially off nigeria. nigeria yeah the gulf of they, guinea yeah the gulf of guinea where they do want the oil you know they want the contraband um which is more typical i think for pirates in history um but uh the the main goal of Somali pirates was, was really to get either a boat or some people who could um, who, who could be used as leverage for extortion, um, and we call that kidnapping for but, ransom. But like, just the idea that like some poor Chinese kid um, who you know made it up like most of of the crew uh, on board would be sort of something that they could profitably trade for. It, it just kind of seems like a little far fetched. Well, it's incredible, um, but it it did work. I mean, at least as long as a ship was intact, there was an owner who had a financial interest in getting it free. Um, but there was there were no successful negotiations for the Nahan Three until very late, and by that time the ship had given out. Um, but you're right; these are very poor men. Um, the entire crew was from from East Asia, and they had been recruited. Um, unethically, I think, in, in some cases, by people who were promising them, you know, a good daily wage, and basically um, put them in a situation where they had to fish long hours, um, and in some cases, not get paid. So, um, the what I learned about, you know, the actual fishing industry was pretty stark too. Um, so, so can you tell me a, a bit about the gang that that captured you? This gang, like who who led them? What was like the kind of political economy that that sustained them? Well, uh, in my case, the the lead operational guy was probably Ali, Ali Dulai, who was a fairly famous pirate. Um, the top financier, I think, is an even more famous pirate named Mohammed Garfanji, and. Garfanji seems to be in charge of all sorts of other kinds of businesses um, in central Somalia. Uh, supposedly, he also invests in real estate in that part of the world. And um, he seems to have an armed or did have an armed band of um, soldiers around him that he would that he sometimes hires out for security for small Somali towns. So I suspect he would like to legitimize himself and get into Somali po- politics. Um, and I certainly hope that no one in Mogadishu lets him do that. So, so, but just be a, a financier. So basically he's putting up the money to mm-hmm. these underlings who then, you know, and, and paying them to hold you captive in the uh, event that he'd profit eventually from some ransom that was being paid. Yeah, exactly. So the, the project of kidnapping somebody or, or taking a ship will be a business venture and it costs an enormous amount of money up front. And so he'll, stake up some of that money, but he'll also get investors. So he'll also have the connections to get um, loaned money from various places. And that can even come from abroad. You know, you can get loans from, who knows, Somalis in um, in, in Dubai or even America. Um, but uh, the all those lenders plus the the top financier like Garfanji will expect to be expect to have a big payout by the end. 
Um, and and those loans, by the way, that's how they keep it going. So if they somehow run out of budget after a couple of months and they haven't reached a deal, then they go out to um, lenders and they they borrow more money. Because so, so it seemed like the longer that you are held captive, the more expensive it is for them. Um, yeah. which in turn means they probably either need to like demand more to cover their losses or, or cut their losses, right? That's Yeah, that's how it works. They have to pay attention to that, though, and they don't always seem to. I mean, they seem to think that the longer they hold someone, um, then um, the, the, more, the more money they can actually demand. Um, and it simply doesn't work, work like that for human beings. It might work like that in the case of a ship, but um, once it became a kidnap for profit operation for people who are just being held on land. Um, the calculus doesn't work the same. So as you're being held, as, as you're held captive, um, you know, you've studied piracy, you, you know, sort of how these operations work. Mm -hmm. um, like, is, is any of this, are, are these kind of calculations going through your head? Well, I'm not sure I knew all the details. Uh, I'm still not sure I know all the details, but uh, the I I was wondering where where the money was coming from, and I was trying to figure out what the economic, what the budgetary cycles were. You know, well, because at the beginning it seemed to work, work in two month cycles. I'm not sure about that, but at the beginning of a of a cycle when there was more money, there there was more food for the hostage. You know, and my treatment was better. And when I could always tell when the money ran out because uh, I I didn't have so much food and water. Um, what did you learn about the um, kind of foot soldiers in in this operation? Uh, the individuals who you know guarded you on a day to day basis. Uh, they're pretty simple men. Uh, they if they're guards, they try to convince you they're not actually pirates. But some of the guards eventually told me stories of being out on the water in in a skiff. Um, so sometimes they try and say, oh, we're not pirates. We're just guarding you and keeping you safe. But that was, uh, probably bullshit in, in, you know, many of the cases. Um, there, there's simple men and they needed jobs. I mean, that much is true. Um, but one point of the title of my book, The Desert and the Sea, is this conflict between the story they tell that all pirates are frustrated fishermen and the fact that most pirates I met were men from the bush. I mean, men from the countryside who simply knew how to work a rifle. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, again, we're, we're kidnapping people, not sort of commandeering cargo. Well, exactly. I mean, in my case, it had nothing to do with the illegal fishing. So uh, you survived obviously and 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 in very difficult uh, circumstances and situations i guess one thing i have and this may seem like kind of prosaic but like how did you sort of last and, and survive that long without glasses this is something that that kind <laughs> yeah. of keeps like as, as someone who's horribly nearsighted and you often refer to like just kind of making out blurry shapes like how, how did just like that experience um how, how did you make that how did you make out how did you sort of survive well, it was horrible. I mean, I, it it made me less able to s figure out a situation quickly, you know, and especially when they kept me in sort of a dim prison room, a dim concrete room. Uh, it was sometimes hard for me to distinguish between my guards because they would swap their clothes around, you know, and they one day, uh, you know, one pirate would be wearing the orange T-shirt. The next day it would be somebody else. I wouldn't necessarily know who it was coming in the door at first. Um, I think if I'd had better eyesight, um, throughout the whole ordeal, I probably would have tried to escape more often. Hmm. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's interesting. I, I, you, it, it's, to me, it's like 
you know, there's a lot very personal uh, about your book and there's a lot that's kind of like relatable. Um, just as, as me as a journalist, I mean, I, I, I don't go out to war zones, but you know, I'm curious about mm-hmm. the world and, 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 and I think about these things a lot, but mm-hmm. just that, 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 that like sort of loss of one's glasses to me just like was, was kind of very personal <laughs> and, and you just kind of like wonder like how, how would you, um, cope in this situation? And that's, you know, I think something that's, I think, um, um, comes through a, a lot in your book and, and the <laughs> elegant prose that you is just like the reader puts themselves in your position often. Right. Good. That's nice. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, so I, I want to learn about the circumstances of your, um, release. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't disclose the amount of ransom that was paid, correct? I, I didn't get to uh, the end of the book, by the way. I've, I've, I, I've, I've, I'm about halfway through. I've, I've, so I haven't read the rest, but yeah, but, no, that, but that's, you can, you can that's not me. a secret. It was yeah. $1.6 million. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was a, that was How a result that, of the negotiation. Come, where did that negotiation. money come from though? Like, sorry, where did that money come from? Uh, my, my mother had to raise it with, um, help from family and friends and some of the magazines I'd worked for and, um, and some institutions in the U S as well as Germany. But did the government of the United States prevent your mother from trying to pay this ransom? Cause there, isn't there like a long standing, yeah, no, they didn't. No, absolutely not. And okay. that's not the business of the government of the United States. And, and in fact, it's never been the policy of the government mm-hmm. of the United States to prevent a, a mm-hmm. family from raising ransom privately. Okay. Um, there was some misunderstanding about that during James Foley's case. And mm-hmm. somebody in the Obama government actually called up the Foley family and suggested that raising money for him to save him um, would have been um, tantamount to providing support for, for terrorism, material support, I think. Um, uh, you, you know, it's true. <laughs> Ransoms help criminals and terrorists, but uh, it's never really been the the policy of the U.S. to get in the way of private ransoms. Um, and the person who said that to the family, Foley family, wound up losing his job. Mm. So, I mean, I, obviously this is like a, a very personal thing like you were freed by this ransom money yet this ransom money also sustained and and was a reward for to the the people that that tortured you and and kidnapped yeah. you um yeah. and and some all, of them well i mean how yeah. do you how do you sort of come to terms with that contradiction i mean obviously we're here and talking and i'm very thankful for that and i'm sure you are but um how do you sort of process the fact that they're also sort of benefited from this well, it's horrifying to think about, it. and it's horrifying to it was horrifying to think about it while I was there. You know, not only am I losing a significant chunk of my life, but it's um, the r- very reason I'm doing that is to provide a whole lot of money for some very evil people. Um, my only consolation is that um, the way it ended was probably better than most other hostage cases in the sense that. Um, most of the time I was there, I was half afraid that uh, there would be a military mission that might come in and kill all the guards I'd gotten to know and maybe kill me, but maybe rescue me. And then there would be no ransom. That would be nice. But the men truly responsible who were the bosses would have been fine. And as it turned out, two two days after I left Somalia, there was a shootout among the bosses over my ransom because they couldn't decide who should get what. And um, five relatively top guys died, in fa- including two bosses. Hmm. Um, again, on, uh, on this, this question though of, of, of ransom, I mean, is there like, how concerned are you that sort of paying these ransoms sustains the, the practice that, 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 you know, resulted in your, your abduction and torture? 
Well, that's exactly what it does in general. But yeah. uh, as it turned out, this this gang was pretty severely damaged by that shootout. And um, I think Mohammed Garfonji is still alive to, en- to enjoy some of that money. But um, Ali Dulai, for example, is not. Um, I, th- I think that the experience of holding me, which lasted a long time and cost them a lot of money, um, as well as the damage to the upper ranks of that that gang um, represented a pretty significant dent um, in the gang's business model. So in the end, it it hurt them. And I don't know if they're still out there trying to catch ships. I suspect some of the pirate bosses that I met probably are. Um, But either the gang has weakened or moved into other businesses or something. I I mean, the, the fact is that while I was in Somalia, um, piracy on the water um, as a practice sort of fell fell off. It, it became less trendy. And that has a lot to do with security measures the shipping industry took. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, there was like a, a NATO operation for a while, if I recall. And I know the, the UN backed some, some efforts as well in the Indian yeah, Ocean. The, yeah. I think NATO's folded up its tents over there, yeah. but a couple other naval groups are still cruising off the coast. But the really helpful new tactic was for cargo ships to hire armed guards uh, to to run along to ride along on you know otherwise peaceful merchant missions right and uh, that that helps protect them from from pirates so how did you come to learn and and can you tell the story of, of your of your release oh well it happened suddenly um, uh, on a day where you know I, I didn't really expect anything to happen so uh, when the pirates told me I was going to go free, at first I didn't believe them. And uh, then they told me they were going to drive me to the airport, and then their story changed. They said, no, we're not going to drive you straight to the airport. We're going to hand you over to some other Somalis. And so I was convinced that I was not going free, that I was being sold to another gang, or you know, if not Al-Shabaab. So um, I, was, I was angry. I was frustrated. I was scared until... I got to the next sort of layer of Somalis and um, the driver of the car actually managed to use his phone to, to um, call my mother and a, and a negotiator I had talked to. Uh, when I heard the two of them sounding very happy, I knew I was going free. And and so where, like, where did you, you, you were back at the same airport, right? In, in which you were initially kidnapped? Yeah. Eventually he drove me to um, another driver who took me to the hotel, to the, um, uh, to the Galkayo airport. And that's exactly where I saw Ashwinoff on that day that I got kidnapped. And waiting for me there was a Cessna uh, that belonged to a, um, a Bush pilot who, um, who I'm friends with in the meantime, a, a very good and very well-trained um, um, pilot. Yeah, it's funny. In the book, you describe him as the first competent person that you met in. You know, I'd met in a couple days, of years. Yeah. Well, <laughs> since since let's say since I left the ship, because yeah. the men on the ship were were competent, but uh, everybody after that, all the pirates, I would say, not so much. So, um, and so you're uh, uh, flown eventually from from Mogadishu to Djibouti to to Nairobi, um, and and you're met by um, U.S. and, and German uh, officials. Like, what did you learn from these officials about sort of the official government efforts to to locate you and to to free you? Oh, just that they did an enormous amount of work. I mean, I um, I think both countries actually provide pretty good support for hostages and hostage families. Um, 
the U.S. provides more than you'd think. You know, the the FBI was at my mother's door within a few hours of my capture, and um, she's quite happy with um, the the information that they were able to give her. Uh, not every hostage family is totally happy with that sort of thing, but it's not always the FBI, and sometimes the cases are different and and very difficult. Um, but my mom got along with with the agents who came to see her, and the Germans that she wound up talking to also were were quite good. Um, I think there was a lot of military surveillance um, and a lot of people who were looking for me, uh, which I'm grateful for. Uh, is there like a, a policy lesson that you could draw, um, you know, based on on your experience and, and your reflections on this experience, um, in terms of sort of what governments can do better to facilitate the release of, of people in your situation, of, of hostages in your situation? I, I, I don't know that there's a policy lesson that's worth talking about in public, uh, but the, the, main, the main lesson that um, I learned as an American is that the policy of not paying ransoms um, by the U.S. government, is, which, and actually by most governments, is not actually a deterrent. In other words, a gang like the pirates who were holding me um, does not brush up on uh, ransom policies by various governments and choose its victims accordingly. Uh, that just doesn't happen. And part of the reason is that either they don't pay attention or they don't believe the men in suits who you know, utter these things from behind podiums. Um, uh, the fact is that the guards holding me were brutally surprised when the when some other Somali told them that there was going to be no ransom from Washington, and one of them was actually angry at me. Eighteen months into my captivity, which means that the word about you, you, America's ransom policy had not sort of moved around in pirate circles. What? Why is there an element that can't be discussed publicly? Like, what? What, what do you mean by that? Oh, I, I would just say there's a there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes in a uh, in a kidnapping case that um, you know you wouldn't even want the American government to announce that it's changing from one policy to another um, so I I would say um, it's it's just stuff like that that uh, you you wouldn't even want um, announced you know um, so, so one of uh, again in, in a story in a book of fold with like really r remarkable stories. To me, one of one of the most eye opening is is that one of your captors reached out to you on Facebook. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Not long after your release, right? Mm -hmm. I guess first, what was it like to to sort of receive that message, and what have you learned uh, subsequently ab about this person and this person's life in in the you know months since? Uh, he was a guard, and he was uh, one of the gentler guards, as a matter of fact. Um, and we've we've had a pretty good discussion online. He he's he's helped with um, uh, with some of my research. So I I sort of corroborated a few stories um, with his help, and so it it hasn't been a bad relationship. Um, and, I, and I learned that he, he had a background that was more or less like I expected um, from, from talking to the other guards. It was quasi-military. At some point, he wasn't making enough money, and so he joined the pirate gang. Um, he was not a fisherman, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, like, 
when you're 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 on a book tour now, you know you've you've been on the Daily Show. I, I heard you on uh, NPR, and and you're sort of reliving these experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is it like traumatic to re, to relive those experiences, or is is it cathartic, or, or something in between? I would say it's more cathartic. Um, the writing the book was first of all difficult, but also very cathartic. I mean, it was very helpful to put all these horrible experiences in a in order, you know, in a narrative line. Um, and it turns out that's what therapists do too. Therapy is good for that. Um, but writing is not therapy and, and talking is not necessarily therapy. It's just helpful to normalize it. In other words, to shove all this horrible experience into a corner um, is not healthy. So to admit to myself that it's part of my life and it's going to remain part of my life is um, actually quite good. So uh, what's next for you then? I mean, you're on book tour right now. What are your next? Do you have reporting projects in in the pipeline that we could look forward to? Uh, Yeah, I do. I'm following another trial here in the Midwest. Um, uh, I've got a couple of projects in the U.S. and I'm I'm working on a new book. Um, I'm also on the board of Hostage U.S., which is a very good nonprofit that gives support to uh, families of people who have uh, some somebody kidnapped somewhere in the world. Um, You know, the governments do something. Um, as as far as helping um, families ease their minds about what's going on, um, Hostage US can do a little bit more too. They fill they fill in the gaps. Um, nothing, none of it's operational. None of it has to do with actually bringing the person home. Um, but a, as far as explaining to a family um, what to expect and what their loved one might be going through in captivity. Um, that's what Hostage US is for. And it's a, I think it's a remarkable organization. And, and I'll, I'll let you plug your, your forthcoming book as, as well. What's, what's, what's that? Uh, the book I'm working on now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a novel that I Perfect. actually started in Somalia because while I was taking notes, sometimes um, it was not advisable to write what was going on that day. And so I um, started to draft a piece of fiction and it, it turned into a it's turning into a novel. And, and a piece of fiction about, about something far away, I would oh, imagine. Oh, yeah, nothing to do with Yeah, keeping your mind as, as far away. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Well, good. Well, well um, Michael, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on, on the book. And, and I'm glad this has been like a, the, the, the experience of talking about the book has, has been cathartic, at least. So thank you. Yeah, exactly. So thank you very much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Michael Scott Moore. Wow. Yeah, no, that, that book, first of all, I, I know I said this before, it is really well written. It is gripping. It's a page turner. Uh, highly recommend it. You should definitely go buy it. He's been on, on something of a book tour recently, gotten some high profile um, interviews, including on The Daily Show and on All Things Considered on NPR. So I hope and trust that the book is, is doing well, but definitely support authors you like. And yeah, I just like keep coming back to this idea of being kidnapped off the coast of Somalia without my glasses and, and not being able to see. I mean, it makes like a, a jarring and horrendous ordeal even sort of more, I think, disorienting and frankly frightening. So just, I can't even imagine. But like I said in the interview, he really does put you in his shoes when, when he's writing this book. All right. So we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye.